Turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, the book of Colossians, and we're continuing in our exposition of the book of Colossians in Colossians chapter 2 and verses 16 to 19. For context, I'll be reading from verse 8 on Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 and following. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for this word and for the instructions and principles and implications and applications that are contained in it. Lord, as we look at your word and these things which you desire to teach us, help us to listen, help us to understand, help us to remember, help us to apply them to our lives. And Lord, as I speak your word, I pray that my words would be your words that your words would go forth in power and precision and clarity and impact the hearts and minds of your people for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, there's many metaphors and illustrations concerning the Christian life, and one of which, which we often hear in the Bible is that of a walk or a race. Um, Some would say a journey. Uh, Even Jesus himself uh, calls a Christian life uh, the narrow path or the straight and narrow path. Uh, Early on in the Christian church and even in the book of Acts, we read um, that the believers were not called Christians first, but they were called the way. That they were on the way, or this was the way, and um, even reminds me of there's a recent uh, show uh, 
that in, in which they say this is the way <laughs> over and over again. And it, it's very fitting because there is a way. There is a journey. There is a race. There is a walk. There is a path to go. There's a road that we go down in our lives. But as any path and any road, there are ditches. There are dangers. And there's ditches on either side of the road. Uh, one preacher has said, and um, I'm sure many others have copied him, that um, walking the Christian life is like walking a tightrope. And we can fall off on either side. Um, and then another preacher would take that analogy, that illustration, even a step further and say that living the Christian life is like walking on the edge of a razor blade. That we must stay on that straight and narrow. And it's so straight and narrow that we could easily be tempted or led astray or fall off on either side. And in this passage... Here in Colossians 2, in verses 16 to 19, the Apostle Paul exhorts the Colossians with two warnings concerning the particular errors and false teachings around them. And in looking at these two errors, we can see um, it's almost as if they're on opposite sides of the road. Two errors which the Colossians and us as well are tempted to fall off on, to stray into, to venture off the straight and narrow. And the first error which we can see right away is the error of legalism. The error of legalism in verses 16 to 17. As Paul says, and he writes to them, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And it, it doesn't take much uh, familiarity with the New Testament or the Bible as, as a whole to understand what Paul is talking about. This error of legalism, of um, going back to the law of Moses, to Jewish traditions, to following um, those dietary laws and statutes that are um, written in... Um, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, to obeying festivals, Sabbaths, to, uh, in a sense, uh, judging or um, qualifying your Christian walk, your Christian life, your spirituality according to these standards, which were put forth in the Old Testament. They are from the Word of God, and they were um, legitimate for a time, but no longer, because we are under the new covenant. Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law for us, the law that we could not fulfill in and of ourselves. And not only has He fulfilled the law, but there's uh, many aspects of the law which were um, only intended for Israel and for that time in the history of God's people, and the history of redemption. We, we see this in our Christian lives and, and many of the churches that we have been in, and um, I'm sure you can spot legalism easily. And sometimes it's not so easy to spot. Sometimes it's subtle. Sometimes we're the perpetrators of legalism. 
John MacArthur, in his commentary, he writes this concerning legalism. He says this, Legalism is the religion of human achievement. It argues that spirituality is based on Christ plus human works. It makes conformity to man-made rules the measure of spirituality. Believers, however, are complete in Christ, who has provided complete salvation, forgiveness, and victory. Therefore, Paul tells the Colossians, let no one act as your judge. Do not sacrifice your freedom in Christ for a set of man-made rules. This is exactly what was happening to the Colossians. This is a danger in every church, in every age of the church. This is a temptation for every believer, that we can establish a set of rules that we follow, that by those standard of rules or extra-biblical standards, that we could measure our own spirituality, and then we um, sometimes unwittingly or sometimes intentionally impose those standards upon others, and we start to judge others. And so um, Paul exhorts the Colossians to let no one pass judgment on them, particularly in these questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, those uh, Jewish traditions, those Jewish laws, and in... in, uh, Pointing out to them this error of legalism, he gives them first the warning. The warning in verse 16 of uh, that people will pass judgment on you. False teachers will come in and judge you. Immature Christians will judge you. This warning of being wrongly judged. Judged according to a standard which you are not under. But in giving this warning of being wrongly judged, it also implies a a, a warning of wrongly judging others and of wrongly applying the law, which is put forth in the Old Testament. A law which was to be an example. A law which showed the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. A, A law which was to be a tutor to lead us to Christ. And throughout the New Testament, we see these examples of the law being wrongly used, of the law being wrongly practiced or imposed upon others. Jesus Christ was, uh, first and foremost, the one to expose these wrong uses of the law. All throughout the Gospels, we can see Him um, confronting those who would use the the law wrongly and wrongly um, impose the law upon others. In Matthew chapter 23, uh, he, in a sense, uh, derides and confronts the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees about um, how they have used the law. In Matthew uh, 23, 23, he says this to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, And have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And it's interesting because all throughout the Gospels, Jesus does not, um, and even he said, he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus does not condemn the law. 
The law is good, even as um, we, we can read all throughout Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. All throughout the Bible, the law is upheld as something that is good and holy and righteous. But it's, it's our misuse of the law. It's a hypocrisy concerning the law, which Jesus exposes, which, which Paul exposes. It's, it's the, the use of the law as a cudgel or a, a club to beat other people down, to use it as a yoke to burden others. And even as Jesus says in, in this verse that there are weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness, the character and the holiness of God, His wisdom. These are the things which the law was supposed to um, show us. But as Jesus came to fulfill the law, which none of us could fulfill, which He fulfilled all righteousness, He obeyed the law perfectly, that in a sense He um, did away with the law. There are certain aspects of the law which carry over certain moral commands, certain things which will never be done away with, but those, even those commands none of us could uphold. Even if we could uphold them in our deeds and in our actions, in our thoughts and our attitudes, we fail. Just as Jesus um, shows us in Matthew chapter 5 in His Sermon on the Mount, in which He said, You have heard it said that thou shalt not murder. I say to you, whoever has hate in his heart towards his brother, he has murdered him in his heart. You have heard it said that thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever lusts after a woman in his heart has committed adultery with her in his heart. That The law, um, it was to be applied to all of life. It was to expose our sinfulness. And so Paul gives the Colossians this, this warning of others who would pass judgment on them concerning the law, and, and particularly the dietary laws, so the, the festivals, the Sabbaths, those, those lesser areas of the law, those external um, ceremonial aspects of the law, which Christ had done away with. And so he gives them this warning. And not only the warning of what others would impose upon them, but in, in a sense it implies a warning to them of imposing that same law on others, of living according to the law and not according to Christ. But then he, he goes on and, in a sense, uh, shows the particular problems. We see the warning of the error of legalism, and then we see the particular problems of legalism. Here in the questions of food and drink, festivals, new moon or Sabbath, days, Diet. And then, even as Paul says in verse 17, that these are all a shadow of the things to come. These are lesser. And the particular problems with the law and with the misuse of the law stems from really an immaturity, an ignorance of the law, of human tradition and that, that just rotely and habitually following the law. And there is a sense that when, when you know, we talk about immaturity and ignorance, we, we ought not to be offended because there is a, a sense in which at one time we we're all immature. 
And we are to mature in Christ, and so there's always an aspect of immaturity as we are maturing in Christ, and there's always an aspect of ignorance as we are growing in the knowledge of Christ. So we, we must be honest with ourselves and honest with others. Well, I'd like, to, like you to see something. Turn with me to Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, this is um, the Jerusalem council, and as um, Paul was preaching and Peter was preaching and the church was growing, um, there was questions that arose concerning the law and the use of the law and, and what impact the law would continue to have on um, believers and on the church and especially uh, those Jewish background believers. And so the Paul and, and, and Peter and all the leaders of the church, they, they had to come together to hold this council to um, hash out some things. And so in Acts 15, it says this, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. We are saved by grace through faith, in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ because of the life he lived and the death he died, we can be forgiven. We can be um, considered righteous because of his righteousness alone and not our own. We are justified by faith and not through works. And this was the main thing which Peter was emphasizing that we were not able to keep the law. So why are you burdening these new believers with the law? And especially Gentiles who um, do not know much about the law at all. And you're burdening them. You're placing a yoke on their neck. And yet, here's the, here's the thing. And here's the danger of legalism. That it wouldn't be much longer after that after that counsel, that Paul would have to confront Peter himself. Peter had just spoke these words about the dangers of legalism and imposing the law as a burden, as a yoke on new believers, and yet 
Not much longer. Paul himself has to confront Peter about doing the same thing, about falling back into legalism, back into this tradition. And in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul says this, as he writes a whole letter to the Galatians about this issue of legalism and the error of the Judaizers who are plaguing the church, he writes and talking about this and talking about um, what Peter did. He says this, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You know, we, we can read the, the letter to the Galatians, and, and it's, a, it's a good reminder of the danger of legalism and the, the greatness of the gospel of grace, of God's grace to save us. But there's also a lesson that we can all fall into legalism. We can all fall backwards. We can all stray. Just as Peter could, at the Jerusalem council, could rightfully and gloriously proclaim the danger of the law and, and of legalism and then proclaim the, the grace of the gospel, it didn't take much longer for him to fall back. We can all fall back because of tradition. It's the power of human tradition. It's the power of cultural tradition. And, and there's a sense that... Um, Almost all legalism finds its origin in tradition and culture. You see legalism in, in, in America, in, in our, our, our churches, it stems from church culture, from denominational culture. And this is just, you know, this is the way we dress. This is the things we do, and we don't go to these places, but you know, it's okay to go to these places. And we don't watch those shows, but it's okay to watch these shows. Or maybe you should just throw out your TV altogether because you're a Christian and there's just filth on there. You know, the old saying, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, or go with girls who do. You know, and that's... And the danger is there's an aspect of human wisdom in all those rules and regulations. And especially when you're a new believer, you need guardrails. You need to discipline yourself. There's a sense, there's, there's still the principle of separation that is right and true. There, there's still the, that truth that bad company corrupts good morals. And so, as any error that we could fall into, there's always an element of truth in it. So we need to be careful. We need to, to guard ourselves. We need balance. So why I said, and why many preachers have said before that, walking the Christian life is like walking a tightrope. You can easily fall off on one side or the other. And it, a lot of it stems from pride. We think we're 
stronger than we really are. Or we think we're better than others. So we impose our standards upon others. Everybody should be just like me because I'm doing it right. No, but we only have one standard. There's one standard that we are to be conformed to and, and one person who we're, we are to be conformed to. And even as Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And where I don't follow Christ, implying where I don't follow Christ, don't follow me. There's always a sense of pride and false teaching in these errors, and, and that is the problem. You know, and, and we, don't, we don't see this. You know, uh, this form of legalism, this, this, this Judaizing, this, this uh, movement back to the law, it's still alive and well. We, we, we might not see it much here, but you go to places where there's a large uh, Jewish population, and certainly you'll have some, thank God, you'll have some Jewish background believers that come into churches. And I remember um, you know, being in Southern California and hearing about um, Messianic congregations. And, and it, you know, at first thought, you know, you think, oh, there's a bunch of Jewish people that got saved and they, they created a church. Call that a messianic congregation. And as, you know, we're, most of us are Gentile background believers, we think that's, that's wonderful, that's great. But then what happens if, if all these Jewish background believers form a church? What's the danger there? And this happens all the time of the Hebrew roots movement, of going back to their heritage, of slowly going back to the law, of festivals, of new moon, of Sabbaths. It happens. I've seen uh, people I've met um, through the army chaplaincy and met rabbis. And you get to talking with them. They, they become chaplains and they want to serve as a chaplain and you get to hear about their background, and it's sad that I've met some of them. They grew up in a Christian home. One of them was a Southern Baptist, but his mother was Jewish. And uh, obviously, he wasn't truly converted and started getting interested in his heritage and his roots, and then all of a sudden decided that he would leave the Christian church and become a rabbi. Because that becomes more important than Christ. Those externals become more important. It's the danger of legalism, of heritage, of tradition. And at the root of it all is the fact that legalism cannot save cannot save you. And we know that, but then how legalism um, creeps in is, is that we think it's sufficient to sanctify us, to make us holy. It can't save us. It can't sanctify us ultimately, but it does separate us. It does cause division. I like what Kent Hughes writes concerning legalism in his commentary. He writes this, the idea that spirituality can be quantified provides an unfortunate basis for pride and judgmentalism. The flesh finds doing truly spiritual things difficult. 
But the flesh has no trouble with religious rules and regulations. There is an authentic lure to legalism. Legalism also demands uniformity. Whenever you find legalism dominant, you will find people who dress the same way and use the same speech, posture, and manners, even the same facial expressions. Do not produce a grotesque uniformity. Lastly, such legalism produces a surface faith because its adherents emphasize the things that are not really important. Legalism limits one to shallow self-righteousness and thus damns him. He goes on to say this. He says this. Interestingly, Paul does not say, forbid the faithful to keep special days and diets. Rather, he says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in these things. There is great liberty in what we Christians can do. We can keep days and diets or forget them. But he rejects the right of anyone to judge and or compel another to comply with his own preferences. We are not to judge others by these things, and we are not to allow others to judge us. It was, the law was for a time. And there's certain things, there's good practices in, you know, our our Christian life, and and we can think of discipleship programs, where um, such practices as um, scripture memorization and, and prayer times and keeping a prayer journal and uh, Bible reading plans and, and uh, forms of service and, and all these um, disciplines that can come with standards and rules and checklists. And they're good, but they can easily turn into a law. We can come into bondage by them. We can impose them upon others. They they can become the the standard and the measure of our spirituality, of our maturity. But there's only one standard. There's only one rule that, that, that we need to judge ourselves according to Scripture. We need to measure ourselves according to Scripture. We need to do what Scripture commands us to do and and not do what it commands us not to do. But in those areas where Scripture is silent, there is a sense of freedom. Unless there's some biblical principle that might speak into that that gray area, some principle of wisdom or stewardship that we could apply. But we're to be careful. And, And what... Kent Hughes was alluding to is is in in this concept of Christian liberty. And so we see the warning in this passage. We see the particular problems of the error of legalism. But then here's the solution. The solution, verse 17 of Colossians 2. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The solution is that we need to understand that these things are a shadow, these laws, these standards in the Old Testament, that these were to point to Christ. The solution to the error of legalism is is actually in understanding the law, in learning more about the law, in understanding its purpose and its application, what it was meant for, why God gave Moses the law, why he... um, told him to write these things down and to command the Israelites to uh, follow them. 
the law was given first and foremost to display the holiness and wisdom of God that even in, in uh, Israel's charter as a nation that in the beginning of Deuteronomy, it says that, that if they were to obey this law and to follow it, the nations would see their life, would see the way they live, and would glorify God saying, what God is like this with, with such wisdom? Who is their God? The purpose of the law and all its statutes was to display the holiness and wisdom of God. But primarily, it was to distinguish Israel from the nations. That in following the law of God, they would be set apart. That they would be distinguished. That they would be different. And the law was given to them so that in obeying it and following it, they would clearly be different because they, they would not eat everything the nations ate. They would not dress the way the nations did. Their, their pattern and behavior of life, their schedule would be different. And, and there, there is a sense that some of those principles carry over into the Christian life. That if we follow the Word of God, the commands of the New Testament, then um, our behavior should be somewhat different. We, we should be distinguished. If we follow the commandments of Christ, we will distinguish ourselves. But those commandments are the weightier matters of the law of love, of mercy, of justice. Third, the law was to reveal the sinfulness of man. It was to lead us to Christ. It was to be a tutor that in giving that law, we would see how, fall, how far we fall short. That the Israelites would see that they could not keep it. That they would see their inadequacy. That they would be honest with themselves and honest with God. And the whole sacrificial system. If they were truly following the sacrificial system, they would be offering sacrifices daily. The, the priests were, in a sense, butchers. They would be covered in blood if they were doing their job and the Israelites were obeying because the law would expose their sinfulness and they would have to continue to sacrifice over and over again. So that, that law was to lead us to Christ, but the law also shows us the perfections of Jesus Christ, His perfect obedience because He upheld the law perfectly. He fulfilled it. If we honestly understand the law and, and, and all its dictates, and then we look at Jesus Christ, we, we should be amazed at His holiness, at His obedience, at His righteousness, at His perfections. And that, that righteousness is imputed to us and given to us, credited to our account through faith. So the solution to the error of legalism is First, to understand the law, its purpose and its application, but then also to understand Christian liberty. Christian liberty. And there's a couple passages which um, list out our liberty in Christ. The main one is Romans chapter 14. So turn with me there to Romans chapter 14. This is the primary uh, chapter and passage which explains Christian liberty and the principles of Christian liberty. 
In Romans chapter 14, in verse 1, Paul writes this, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And in this passage, Paul's particularly, he, he's still talking about dietary laws and standards, about days. And he's speaking to the Romans, which is a mixture, the Roman believers, a mixture of Jew and Gentile Christians. And the main principle he, he's, he puts forth is, don't pass judgment on a servant of another. Don't, don't pass judgment on your brother. And there's also a principle of the weaker brother and the stronger brother. And we're to be careful not to offend the weaker brother or to bring him into bondage by um, flaunting our liberties in front of him. Things which his conscience is weak. But there's a sense that before the Lord we all stand or fall and, and we um, are to, um, in a sense, inform our conscience through Scripture as we grow and as we mature and to be careful not to burden another believer, especially with something that is extra-biblical. That that's, in a sense, a sin to burden another believer with, something, with an extra-biblical standard. It's not found in Scripture, and, and there's also a sense that certain things um, within Scripture we can use as um, a yoke or burden to another believer. One commentator, he writes concerning this passage in Romans 14, he says this, Though it was no longer required by God, the weak Jewish believer felt compelled to observe the Sabbath and other special days associated with Judaism. On the other hand, the weak Gentile wanted to separate himself from the special days of festivities associated with his former paganism because of its immorality and idolatry. The mature believers were unaffected by those concerns. Each Christian must follow the dictates of his own conscience in matters not specifically commanded or prohibited in Scripture. Since conscience is a God-given mechanism to warn in response to the highest standard of moral law in the mind, it is not sensible to train yourself to ignore it. Rather, respond to its compunctions 
And as you mature by learning more, your mind will not alert it to those things which are not essential. We're all on a path. We're all on the way to maturity, to maturing in Christ, to growing. We all stumble and fall, and we're all tempted by certain things, and there's, we all come from a background, uh, traditions, habits. We're prone to certain standards. But as we grow, we are to inform our conscience and grow and, and uh, submit to the law of God. That's to be our standard. There's other um, verses which um, show this principle of liberty in, in, by Paul. In, in 1 Corinthians um, 6, he says this in, in verse 12, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. That's probably one of the best verses, a principle for the exercise of our liberties. Is it helpful? Is it profitable? Does it um, push me closer to Christ? Or, or does it pull me away from Christ? Does it encourage uh, uh, holiness and good morals? Or does it encourage sinfulness and, and, and to be undisciplined? Is it helpful? Is it lawful? Will it dominate me? These are all questions which we must ask when we consider where we go, what shows we watch, um, what do we partake in, who do we associate with, all those, what we would call those gray areas of liberty. We have to ask those hard questions. Is this profitable? And that's, in a sense, between us and the Lord. And we need to be careful when uh, we see another brother or sister um, engaging in something which we seem, which to us seems questionable. We have to go back to Scripture. And there is a way to ask another brother or sister, hey, is, is that profitable? Is that helpful for your walk? But we need to be very careful about trampling over someone else's conscience. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 8. He says in verse 8 to 11, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? If his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols... And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. And this is the concept of forgoing the exercise of your liberties in the presence of another brother or sister because you might um, harm them. You might um, trample their conscience. You might um, encourage them to do to violate their own conscience by the exercise of your liberties which you are comfortable doing this reminds me and this is this is somewhat popular in in our day and age especially um you know pastors and preachers my age uh, people that come from the what what um uh tim challies and others have called the young restless and reformed group and uh, who um, partake in alcohol or smoke or wear sort, certain sorts of things, but they're in 
a sense of very public office. And yes, some of them, they can partake in those liberties. They, they, they do it in such a way that they aren't sinning, but they're also flaunting their liberties in such a way that they're harming the conscience of others and they're being a bad example to others. And so especially for leaders in the church, you need to be willing to sacrifice your liberties for the sake of others. That it's, it's, not, it's not a big deal. You know, some, some things are not worth it. And it's, it's okay to abstain for the sake of others. But there's very subtle gray areas. We need to be mindful of others when we exercise our liberty. <laughs> I'm reminded of certain stories. Um, Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, there's a couple stories about him and the exercise of his liberty. And, and he, in a sense... Um, Maybe a little bit, you know, flaunting a little bit, um, but um, there, there's one story where um, someone comes up to him and one, one of his, um, the people in his church, and, and they say, Pastor, Pastor, I have this, this, someone gave me this box of cigars and I don't know what to do with them. And he says, so he says, give them to me and I will smoke them to the glory of God. And that's a Baptist. <laughs> you know, so, you know, <laughs> there's, a, there's another story of him. He was, he was going on a, a, a train ride, and he was going somewhere, and, and he comes out. And in those days, you know, you, um, we're not too familiar with train cars, m- most of us. But, you know, you have certain cars, a dining car, and your, you know, your sleeping cabin. And then you, you might have a car for the restrooms. And he's coming out of first class, going to use the restroom, and, and then someone uh, from his church comes out of third class, and he says, Pastor, Pastor, I'm sitting in third class taking care of the Lord's money. And he's like almost rebuking Spurgeon. Spurgeon says, I'm in first class taking care of the Lord's servant. <laughs> and so it's just an example of you know, how we, can, we have different standards, and, and, and both were right. Because the one believer in his mind, he wanted to be frugal. He wanted to be a good steward of the Lord's money. But in Spurgeon's mind, he needed a rest. He labored for the Lord. And the Lord gave him that money to use, to enjoy. So he enjoyed it. He had no problem. This is, you know... (laughs) The, the, the solution is understanding who we are in Christ and, and what Christ has done for us, what He has given for us. He has provided us all things, but we're also to be mindful of others. We're to be mindful of where they are in their Christian life. And Peter writes, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. That we are complete in Christ. We are fulfilled in Christ. He gives us everything we need for life and godliness. He gives us everything we need for salvation. Everything we need for sanctification. And so we don't need to make those lesser standards and disciplines and extra biblical rules. And and even the laws in the Old Testament. We do not need to make those the main thing. The main thing is Christ. 
And this is why Paul says um, in verse 17 of Colossians 2 that these are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Now all these rules and regulations, these standards, these laws, they're just a shadow. They're just a picture. But we have the substance. We have the real thing. We have the real deal in Christ. And so we no longer need to go back to the shadows. We no longer need to go back to lesser things. Is there some sort of profit in them? Maybe. That's not the main thing. The writer to the Hebrews says this for in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. As the writer to the Hebrews said, the, the law and the sacrifices and everything composed in the law cannot make us perfect. Only Christ can. And even many of our Christian standards and rules and regulations and practices, which um, many of them are good, cannot, in a sense, make us perfect. We're sanctified in Christ. We have some things which are good. But the substance, the great, is Christ. And so Paul warns the Colossians of this error of legalism. And then second, he warns them of the error of asceticism. Verses 18 to 19. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. This, this error of asceticism. And asceticism, um, it, it's kind of like a mixture of mysticism and legalism. Uh, you think of, of monasticism, of monks. Um, there is this um, subjective, uh, spiritual, mystical sense of it, but then there's this also this um, strict disciplinary sense of, of um, you know, uh, denying yourself all the, the pleasures of this life. But seeking um, higher spiritual experiences. Curtis Vaughn writes this. He says um, concerning this um, verse in uh, verse 18, he says this, the literal meaning of the clause is, let no one act as umpire against you. That is, give an adverse decision against you. Perhaps it is only a stronger and more picturesque way of saying, let no one judge you. The essential meaning is, let no one deny your claim to be Christians. The person attempting to make such judgment is described as one who delights in false humility and the worship of angels. The context suggests that he seeks to impose these things on the Colossians and that this is the means by which he attempts to disqualify them for their prize. You know, what these, um, the false teachers and, and even many true believers in, in the church at Colossae, um, they were tempted and to impose this asceticism, uh, this worship of angels, visions, um, 
certain things. And in doing so, in insisting on these practices, they were, in a sense, disqualifying those who were not taking part in those practices. They're saying, you know, you're, you're truly not spiritual unless you do this or that. You're, you're, you're truly not a Christian unless you do X, Y, and Z. If you really want to follow Christ, if you really want to know him, you will do A, B, C, and 1, 2, 3. And this goes back to um, the sense of, of, of the Gnostic heresies, the, the Gnostic religion, the Gnostic ideologies of, of um, uh, spiritual beings and, and demigods, and that there was a hierarchy, and in, in order to reach the highest one, you have to go through the mediators. And Christ is just one of the several um, mediators. He's very spiritualized. And Paul is saying, let no one disqualify you or deny your claim to be Christians because you're not partaking in any of these practices or these ideologies. John MacArthur, once again, he writes in his commentary, mysticism may be defined as the pursuit of a deeper or higher subjective religious experience. It is the belief that spiritual reality is perceived apart from the human intellect and natural senses. It looks for truth internally, weighing feelings, intuition, and other internal sensations more heavily than objective, observable, external data. Mysticism ultimately derives its authority from a self-actualized, self-authenticated light rising from within. This irrational and anti-intellectual approach is the antithesis of Christian theology. Basically, what he's saying is, is mysticism, asceticism, it, it's subjective, it's spiritual, it, it, it comes from below, it, it's, it's looking upward from below, but um, Christianity, everything we know about God, everything we know about um, who God wants us to be, comes down from below. Uh, I mean, comes down from above, below, um, to through revelation, through the Word of God. As one of my professors had always said, one of my theology professors said, you cannot reason up to God. You only understand God through His revelation, through His Word. And so you must submit to His revelation. You can't reason up to Him through your experiences. And, And even as we see in all the errors of the charismatic church, that they, they just make things up about God because they feel a certain way or they want to experience God a certain way. But all our experiences need to be filtered through and defined and measured by the Word of God. It's the only way we know whether or not our experiences are valid because we're all sinful. We're all prone. We, we can't even, and Paul says, I, I'm not even able to judge myself. But it's the Lord who judges me. And so Paul, he warns the Colossians of this error of asceticism, which is very, very closely linked to this error of legalism and all the standards, but there's, it's a more mystical sense. And, and, and here's, the, here's the lure, here's the deception of being truly spiritual, of being in the in crowd, of in the inner circle. Kent Hughes, he he writes this concern in in his commentary. He says this concerning this verse. The thought of being excluded from the inner circle 
is so devastating for some, they will do anything to get in. C.S. Lewis, giving a guest lecture in 1944 to King's College, said that the desire to be in the inner circle, whatever it may be, is one of the great permanent mainsprings of human action. Of all passions, the passion for the inner ring is most skillful in making a man who is not yet a very bad man do very bad things. And this was the lure of the Gnostics, of the false teachers, of almost every false teacher. Don't you want to be in? Don't you want to be spiritual? Don't you want to be um, excellent? Don't you want to know? It's all the Gnostics, the secret knowledge, the spiritual exercises, this lure of being the spiritual elite. This is the same lure which is in the, the Masons, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Scientologists. There's always this other level of knowledge, of attainment, of spiritual attainment. And it, it lures people in to strive and, and, and to work and do whatever they need to do to get to that other level so that they learn what they learn. And the truth of the matter is there's no secret. There's no secret. They may have things made up that there's some secret at the higher level, but, I mean, you think of the Masons and all their, um, their, their hierarchy, their... their um, extensive hierarchy, and it's all to, you know, people work hard to get up to that higher levels to learn some secret. There's no secret. There's, no, there's nothing there. There's nothing spiritual. There's no, all the revelation is here. It's free. You just need to look at it. It's in God's Word. But that's the lure. That's the lure that the Gnostics use. That's the lure that every false teacher, every cult uses the secret knowledge, the spirituality. And Paul warns the Colossians of this, of this asceticism. This asceticism that can um, disqualify others. And, and, you know, just like legalism that we, you know, we're to not let anyone pass judgment on us, we're not to judge others. And we're not to disqualify others. Paul said this to Timothy in Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This, these extra-biblical standards, this spiritual, secret spiritual truths or um, strict asceticism to um, rise to the next level of spirituality, it's all for nothing. Everything God has given us, everything we need for life and godliness in his word, we have it all. We have it all in Christ. You don't need anything else. But Paul wants to warn the Colossians of this, and, and in doing so, he warns us in, in, in um, warning them and instructing them of, of these problems. He also warns us and instructs us of these problems, of these ditches, that we're um, to be careful not to fall into them, not to um, uh, go astray to experiences or 
extra-biblical standards of looking for something extra. There's this uh, book, uh, some of you may have know the author, uh, Paul Tripp, who's um, really uh, big in the counseling world and has written many good uh, books. And, and he wrote a book called How People Change. It's a really good book about how we change, how we grow in holiness. And he writes a, a story of, um, concerning mysticism. And this asceticism. He says this, he says, Christine careens from emotional experience to emotional experience. She is constantly hunting for a spiritual high, a dynamic encounter with God. Because of this, she never stays with one church very long. She is more a consumer of experience than a committed member of the body of Christ. Yet in between the dynamic experiences, Christine's faith often falls flat. She struggles with discouragement and often finds herself wondering if she is even a believer. Despite the excitement of powerful moments, Christine isn't growing in faith and character. And he comments, he says, Biblical faith is not stoic. True Christianity is dyed with all the colors of human emotion. But you cannot reduce the gospel to a dynamic emotional experiences with God. As the Holy Spirit indwells us and the Word of God impacts us, most of the changes in our hearts and lives take place in the little moments of life. The danger of mysticism is that it can become more a pursuit of experience than a pursuit of Christ. It reduces the gospel to dynamic, emotional, and spiritual experiences. And just like legalism is a danger in our churches and in our age, so is this mysticism, this asceticism, that it's a danger in our culture. And it's becoming even more and more of a danger with all the music, the Christian music that's coming out, the, our, um, I guess in, in the, the counterculture of the 60s and, and the, the, the um, you know, I, me, mine generation. Um, all this individualism and, and the, the mysticism that, that flowed into our culture and into our media throughout the, the, the past few decades, and it's in, in our church. I, I remember being in, in, a, in, a, um, in an army course, and I was there for a few months and, you know, as a young believer, and there was one other believer there, and we're talking, we're going to church and trying to look for churches, and there's other people who weren't sure that, they were believers or not, but they wanted to go to church, and they were, we were um, trying to figure out where to go to church, and we went to chapel one day, and one, one, one of this, um, one man who we were pretty sure wasn't a believer, he came up to us after a church service in the chapel, and, and he said, guys, guys, we should get together and go to a Christian concert. He's like, I remember going to a Christian concert one, one time, and just the energy was so great, and just... That it, it was awesome. And he's, as far as I could tell, and would later confirm that he was not a believer at all, but he had an experience, and he was chasing that spiritual experience and that high. And, and this not only happens with those around the church that are on the fringe that aren't a believer, but it happens with true believers that are in weak churches, and they, they have these... Christian bands, which are basically a rock band that Christianize their lyrics, bands like Hillsong or Bethel or Elevation. 
And this is how heresy creeps in because the music is great and it makes me feel good and it, it lifts me up. And, and, and then all of a sudden that's where heresy comes in. And it, it's not about the feeling. Our worship is about God. It's not about how we feel. It's, it's not about what makes us feel good. It's about um, who God is and what He has done and what He has said and what He desires. That's how we are to order our worship. But this, this danger of mysticism, of asceticism, it's all throughout our culture. It's all throughout our media. We, we see it in movies. We see it in shows. And yes, we do have a sense of Christian liberty to watch certain shows, but we need to be aware that it's there. It's in the air we breathe. It's all around us. And we need to be careful not to fall prey to it. That, that we, we only have one standard. We have one standard for life and godliness, the Word of God. And in order to uh, not fall prey to these errors of legalism or asceticism or mysticism, we, we need to understand the solution. The main solution is to um, be grounded in the Word of God, but also to recognize that the, there are counterfeit forms of sanctification out there. There are isms, there are cults, there are ideologies which um, can take us captive, which can deceive us. And this is why Paul is writing. He lists some of these things. But we need to recognize in our own day and age the forms they take, the legalism, the asceticism, the stoicism, pietism, mysticism. And then, you know, if the devil doesn't get us with legalism, he'll get us with licentiousness and antinomianism. And then there's this sense of escapism or diversion, projection of, of escaping our own uh, struggles with sin rather than taking them head on. All of these isms, they're, they're, they're not just another way to be saved, but they're another way to be sanctified and another way to be holy, which is not the true way. We need to understand the the errors that are out there, but we need to first and foremost understand the true way of how we are sanctified. And the Bible tells us in a few passages that biblical sanctification is starts with worship. As Paul told the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3.18, probably one of the greatest verses and passages considering um, sanctification. He says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. As we worship God, as we behold God, as we behold Christ, as we see Him as He really is, as we study who, he's, who He is in Scripture, as we seek to conform our lives to Him and we look to Him, there's a sense that through the Holy Spirit is transforming us into His image from one degree of glory to another. As we run the Christian race, we are to fix our eyes on Him, the author and perfecter of our faith. We are to run the race as he, uh, to Him as, as our goal. We are to hold fast to the head. That's what Paul told, tells the Colossians. This is how you... Um, you guard yourself. This is how you keep from being led astray, that you hold fast to the head. Everything comes from Christ. All, all the growth, 
the nourishment, the provision, the sufficiency, the fulfillment. Everything comes from Christ. Uh, your, your salvation um, from beginning to end is, is founded in Christ. It's complete in Christ. You are sanctified in Christ. You are being conformed to the image of Christ. It's all about Jesus Christ. And Jesus Himself said to His disciples, Abide in Me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in Me. That's our goal. That's our secret. That's the way we are sanctified. That's the way we grow in Christ. That's the way we are conformed into His image. That's the way we are pleasing to God by abiding in Christ. And as we abide in Him, we bear fruit. But there may be some of you today that, you know, you look at your lives and you look at the way you stumble and, and, and fall and you, you, you may wonder, why, why am I not bearing more fruit? Why am I not a fruitful Christian? And, and yes, there is in a sense, even in the same chapter, in John chapter 15, um, Jesus talks about pruning. There are times of pruning that you will bear more fruit. But there also is the principle that if you are in Him, you will bear fruit. And if you don't bear fruit, you've got to consider, are you in Him? Do you know Him? And those fruits are described in Galatians chapter 5. Those fruits of the Spirit, those attitudes, those holy, righteous thoughts. And that, that evidence itself in works. But it, even as, as Jesus warned, and John the Baptist warned, a tree that does not bear fruit is cut off and thrown into the fire. So we have to ask ourselves, are we bearing fruit? Are we abiding in Him? And if not, we need to seek Him, to call upon Him, to look to Him, to hope in Him, to come to Him. As Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Seek him while he may be found. Call upon him. Trust in him. Hope in him. Live for him. Heavenly Father, there's so many ways in which we can be led astray and it is true that we are sheep. We are your sheep. Unless we keep our eyes fixed on the shepherd. We will go astray. So Lord, help us to keep our eyes fixed on him. Help us to stay in your word, to know your word, to submit to your word, to follow your word. And lastly, to proclaim your word that you may be glorified in and through us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.